Nexus PMG welcomes you to the Bigger Than Us podcast, which we as energy geeks lovingly refer to as the BTU. Bigger Than Us is a podcast that focuses on ideas that will shape the future of our planet and ultimately our existence. We will occasionally lean into energy topics because after all, it's the key to our collective survival, but we'll also explore other ideas and topics that we believe will have an impact that is bigger than us. And now, on to today's show. Hello and welcome to the Bigger Than Us podcast. I'm your host, Raj Daniels, and today I'd like to welcome Jeremy McCain to the show. Jeremy McCain is an artist with the passion for the environment. His focus has been directed on ocean issues for several years. He is an active Explorers Club member and the CEO of OCN.ai, also known as Project Ocean, an autonomous network of marine robots that automate enforcement at sea. Jeremy, how are you doing today? You know, I can't complain. I mean, um, I'm, I'm sitting in my house. I'm comfortable. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm connecting with amazing, wonderful people like yourself uh, from around the world. So, um, you know, it could be worse, and I'm grateful that it isn't. Well, I appreciate the kindness. And where are you located? I'm in Dallas, Texas. Me too. It's a lovely day today, isn't it? I don't know. I haven't been outside. That's what happens with this like COVID situation where we, we end up like, you know, working, working, working. And then you realize, crap, I haven't actually been outside for a few days. <laughs> well, take my word for it. It's beautiful today. It's very nice. Well, I will make it a mission to at least venture out. While I, after, maybe I'll do it after this call. So, Jeremy, I'd like to open the show by asking my guest the following question. If you were asked to share something interesting about yourself, what would it be? I don't know. I guess it depends on what you find interesting. I mean, um, you know, I think it's, it's it's also funny because that 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 question it gets I get that question a lot. And what others might find interesting, uh, my wife isn't going to find interesting <laughs> at all. Um, so it's all a matter of perspective. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think um, something that I I think is interesting is um, about myself is I I really over the last few years have enjoyed working with humpback whales in the wild. And um, for a number of years, and I've, I've spent filming them, um, I continually go back because no one has ever documented the um, birth of a humpback whale. Um, they've gotten close, but not a full birth. And so um, it's something that I feel like, you know, it's a shame that with all the knowledge we have as humans that we don't know more. And uh, so it's one of the things that drives me out there to to go continue to try and capture. But um and I've been in the water with, you know, 35, 36 humpbacks at once. And it's just a, an amazing experience. And it, it gives you perspective on this planet of really and truly how small you are. So that is interesting. My kids love watching these wildlife shows on Disney. Whales are one of their favorites. I have never been in and around whales. I've seen this photograph of a kayaker. I think it's somewhere by Seattle. And there's, I don't know what kind of whale it is, but it's a huge whale that's just kind of swimming next to the kayaker. And it kind of freaks me out every time I see it. Yeah, try being on a surfboard. I mean, it's so funny because it's like, I remember the first time it happened to me. Actually, the first time I wasn't on a surfboard, it was on a kayak. I was in Hawaii and I just had this massive, what looked like an island coming up, you know, it's just like this right next to me. And yeah, I just, and then they disappeared. 
And that was the part that scared me the most because I was like, well, what if he's going to do a breach and I'm right here? You know, you're, it's amazing what happens inside your brain when you're by yourself and you have no one to talk to, uh, how easily you can, you can freak yourself out. But I will, I will, um, you know, set your mind at ease in, in explaining that, you know, humpback whales um, and other whales, uh, they're very social creatures. Actually, they have more spindle cells in their prefrontal cortex than we do. So they have a better understanding and dynamic of these social interactions within themselves, but possibly even, you know, with us as well. But um, they consciously decide to get out of our way. They don't want to harm us. Uh, it's uh, one of the only animals that I've ever been with that, that you feel like you are um, you're connected to something, you know, probably in many ways much greater than you are. It sounds amazing. Now, how many times have you been around humpback whales? I've got collectively almost a thousand hours underwater. I mean, I kind of, I lost count after a while, but it's, it's somewhere near a thousand hours underwater. That's another thing that bothers me quite a bit is being underwater. I'm happy to jump out of an airplane, but being underwater, you know, being in an environment where I can't breathe has always been a little bit disturbing for me. I did some scuba training many, many years ago, but haven't been back, done some snorkeling a few years ago, but it's something I need to explore further. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because, like, you know, I started I started diving, you know, uh, scuba diving and those kinds of things. And I would say it's funny because I don't actually scuba dive as much as I used to. Um, I, I practice more free diving, which probably freaks you out even more. Um, that's where you take one breath at the surface and you go down, you know. And, um, you know, when I first started doing it, I could maybe do 20 feet and hold my breath for, like, you know, a minute. Um, but the longer you practice, uh, the longer you can go, the deeper you can go. Um, and there's an old saying that scuba divers dive to look around and free, uh, free divers dive to look within. And a lot of that is because when you're down there, you can hear more, you're part of the environment, you get a better understanding for how things really operate in the oceans, but you know, I would say collectively on the planet as, as a whole. Well, maybe offline you can give me some tips and pointers about overcoming some of these concerns I have. I would love to. In fact, uh, I'd love to have you come out to Maui one of these days. I'll, I'll show you firsthand. Appreciate it. So, Jeremy, can you give me an overview of Project Ocean? Yeah, sure. So, you know, we this is a, a concept that um, really involves technology and a little bit of indigenous wisdom. And I say a little bit because I've really just been inspired by some of the things that I've learned. Um, I guess the best way to start would be to talk about the ancient practice of tapu, uh, or as the Fijian language is referred to as tambu. Um, tapu uh, this basically means taboo or forbidden. And it was a practice, you know, there's lots of different types of tapus, right? Like this, you know, you should wear, you shouldn't walk around naked. That's a tapu, right? Um, but in, as it relates to, um, you know, or maybe you couldn't walk around naked. That's your, your thing. But my, some other people might say, hey, that's very tapu. <laughs> um, but as it relates to ocean um, conservation, uh, some of these areas were created so that fishermen wouldn't fish. Um, there was a certain reverence that was uh, attached to this. You know, if you pass through a tambu, then, you know, a lot of times you have to take your hat off or your sunglasses or you couldn't speak. Or um, there's a, just a number of just respect things. And um, some tambus were created because maybe people died in that spot and it was a, something for people to memorialize. Other times, it was the fact that the resources were running low. And the chief would often say, this area is tambu, and no one goes in here, no one goes fishing. 
And so what they would find is that they would come back a year later, they would count the fish, and then the fish wasn't necessarily where it needed to be. They'd come back the following year and so on and so forth. Eventually, when there was enough that they couldn't count anymore, then they would release the tumble and go fishing. So it was this interesting kind of balance. And we don't really do that today. We create these marine protected areas, these sanctuaries, and we do amazing work. The scientists that are involved in these are doing phenomenal work. But you know they're not necessarily... Uh, in line with some of the ancient practices. And so I thought, well, what if we could somehow bridge that technology or bridge the technology with some of those ancient practices? So I, I, I sat down with probably some of the smartest people that I could find and said, you know, what if we created a network where we could collaborate and share data? Um, just so it turns out, though, some of the data uh, doesn't really come in the frequency that you would want. I mean, you can access all kinds of data about the ocean, but you might not get it for six months. So what we have is a lot of low resolution, low frequency data. And um, if I, you know, correlate this to say your bank account and you're spending money every single day, but you never, you got a statement once every six months, it'd be really hard for you to make any kind of massive adjustments because the, the frequency in which you're getting your, your feedback data is really not uh, conducive to actually making hard and fast uh, decisions that could maybe prevent you from bankruptcy in that case. So this is kind of the state of the ocean. We don't have high resolution, high frequency data. And, and uh, Lord Kelvin uh, is famously quoted by saying that if we were to improve something, we must first measure it. So we want to improve the ocean. We want to improve the health, but we also need to have proper measurement tools and, and collaboration tools. So what we strive to do is measure the life in the ocean you know is it conducive for life for one that's the first step um, are there contaminants or pollutants that are preventing life from taking place in these waters second to that if that is a conducive place for life and and uh, longevity what kind of life is there you know is there tuna is there groupers snappers sharks whales what is it and then beyond that what are those lives actually worth? You know, we know what a value of a tuna or a snapper or a grouper is, right? Because that's the kind of thing that we would expect to buy at the market. But how many of the tunas are there? How many of the groupers are there? Well, we just don't know. And this is what brings us to this concept of the tragedy of the commons. We're extracting life in the oceans at unprecedented rates. And how do we really know what's left? Well, we don't. So um, we set out to say, you know, what if we could build some tools that could examine things. My first thought was, I don't know, I mean, imagine if, you know, we were snorkeling and then we could recognize fish. Could we do that? So we could train machine learning models to be able to um, recognize certain types of fish and then to count them. So that's one way, but that only works so far because, you know, we can only see what we can see probably zero to say 20 feet. Beyond that, um, it gets a lot more difficult. And here enters into this brave new world, um, very experimental, of environmental DNA, where we grab water samples and we look for specific genomes of the types of fish that we're looking for. Um, so that's one way that we're, we're being able to do it. And so what that does is it gives us kind of a baseline of what is actually there and is it increasing or is it decreasing? Um, and so, so that's one side of what we're doing and why we're doing it is just to better understand our oceans. I like to look at it a lot like how we acquire data about, you know, earth and weather systems. You don't hear very many people dying from tornadoes and hurricanes like you did in the early 1900s. 
And the reason for that is because we have a massive amount of data collection. We have machine learning algorithms that can actively predict storm tracks and people are getting out of the way and it's saving lives. So if we were to acquire the same amount of data or more about the oceans, which by the way, is the final frontier of human understanding, we know more about space than we do on oceans, then I think we could maybe you know, prevent some absolutely huge catastrophes from happening um, and you know, we could mitigate some of the risks. So that's really one of the major things. And from a, from a business standpoint, it makes value because if all of a sudden I have $100 million worth of fish that are floating around in my waters and we've been able to measure successfully and manage them successfully, then maybe if we protected it the way that we want to, we could have a billion dollars with fish in the next 15 years. But we would never know that if we didn't start measuring appropriately. And so that's really the basis for this. And um, I would say the final thing that we do is that um, we've also built an autonomous enforcement tool. So if Raj, you decide that you want to come fishing in our sanctuary, we're going to let you know pretty quick. You cannot fish there because it's a sanctuary. But if you decide that you're going to be hard-headed and you're going to continue to fish, we'll let you know that you're under arrest and the Marine Police or Navy or whoever the the authority is in that particular country will soon uh, approach you and you're going to be boarded. If at that time you decide you want to run, that's probably the worst thing you could do. We will intercept you. We will get in front of the bow of your boat and we will release a uh, propulsion uh, system. Basically, it's a, a, a prop fowler but it will completely destroy your propulsion system. And the only way for you to fix it is to dive down and unmangle this horrible tangled weave of Kevlar cables that we've just wrapped around your props uh, or entangled into your jet propeller. Uh, so this gives the ability for the um, authorities to approach you, arrest you. And in some countries that we're working with, uh, they will sink your boat on the spot. So you don't want to run from us. So several questions. Um, start with the first one. How do you collect the data and feel free to get as technical as you need to, because I know the audience will appreciate it. Yeah, sure. So um, the first the first thing that we, we wanted to do is we wanted to grab like, you know, so, what's, the, what's the cheapest way to get data? So I started looking at Raspberry Pis because they seem to be like pretty accessible. They're pretty inexpensive. And I kind of like the DIY kind of element to it. So uh, we started, you know, saying, well, what sensors are, you know, off the count, off the off the over the counter available for the Raspberry Pi. Well, you can get temperature sensors and you can get pH sensors and you know all these kinds of things. The question becomes: Are they scientifically valid? And these are some of the things that we're continuing to kind of verify. You know, and and and, and is one sensor equivalent to the next sensor? You know, these are some of the problems. But but what we can do is we we can still get enough information to better understand more than what we do now, which is nothing. <laughs> Having a sensor in a place, regardless of how scientific it is or isn't, doesn't matter when you're not doing anything at the present. You know, you can only go up from there. So um, using platforms like that, I think is really cool. And then we've also started um, looking into, um, you, know, uh, you know, basically 3D printing uh, these buoy systems uh, that can be printed with algae, uh, which is pretty cool. So we can provide the STL files, we can provide the ISO um, for a particular type of buoy, depending on the, the type of uh, configuration you have. And the cool part about this is that, you know, like if you think of like a Bitcoin transaction, right? The, um, you know, if you think about what is Bitcoin mining? Well, Bitcoin mining is essentially a, a, a game. It's a computer game. And whoever can divide the fastest uh, is, is the one that's rewarded based on, you know, how much computing power that you put into a pool. 
I, I think this problem is kind of stupid, really. I think it's because it's such a huge waste of not only computing power, but really human innovation. I mean, I think cryptocurrencies and the transactions and what they represent themselves is actually pretty ingenious. But the way that we've got this thing, it's like, mm, it's a bit of a waste. And so I thought, well, instead of having that waste where we're running these stupid algorithms, what if we collected data and just like in Bitcoin mining, where you where you contribute so much computing power to the pool is you know equivalent of how quickly you're going to get paid back for finding the block. What if you were to collect data from the ocean and contribute to the pool of knowledge? And when this data is then paid for by a number of different agencies, academia, private sector, then you got paid based on the amount that you contributed to the pool. To me, this seems like a much more viable use for blockchain technology than maybe some of the ways that we're using it now. So that's one way. The other way is we've built our own systems that um, are capable of carrying your scientific sensors that you probably would, would, would see on an expedition. And so um, initially I thought, well, it would be really cool to take these things and send them out unmanned. And where I think this is a value is that whenever you have these kinds of missions that you're trying to do, um, scientifically through you know whatever university, there's grants, there's scientists, there's people that need to be on a boat, there's a boat, there's fuel, there's food that needs to be sent to these people so they can you know not starve to death while they're out at sea. It's just a lot of expense. Well, what if we could put that sensor on an autonomous vessel that could move periodically wherever you needed it to the study, and better yet. What if Harvard used it today, but tomorrow uh, MIT earmarked it and, you know, Woods Hole used it the day after? We would be using the same sensor, not having to buy it three times, uh, doing the same amount of work without having to go through. So it's a lot like time sharing on a satellite. So that's one way we're collecting, we're going to be collecting data. Um, and and the, other, the other way, I think, is, is just um, by observation. You know, we're, we're looking at also putting... Uh, sensors on various boats so as fishermen go out and they work in these areas then we're collecting a number of different data sets for them and then um, when it comes back into the, the visualization of this data we're working with a couple different companies to come up with ways to really visualize this in a 3d space because i feel like if you acquire data in a, from a 3d plane then you should be able to distribute it um, in a 3d plane because that's that's how we understand things as humans our brains work in very spatial environments it's the same reason why you can be on. You can listen to a podcast and probably retain more because as you're listening to this podcast, you're probably looking around at things in a geospatial setting. And later on, you might be in the same exact geospatial setting, and you might remember these very things that I'm talking about right now. Whereas you might be on a Zoom call, staring at a 2D screen, and you might not remember the context um, necessarily as much as you would in, in this way. So we think. It, it, making the tools better for humans to really conceptualize and feel what's happening is a better way to kind of mitigate, um, you know, potential threats. And um, so that's, that's, those are just some of the ways that we're collecting data. And you know, we're, all, we're all in constant exploration mode of, of different types of systems that we could do. Of course, there's also tons of data that's currently being connected, collected by the ocean. Um, there's Global Fishing Watch, as an example, who provides a free API. There's the Argos Float Network. And we're tapping into all those systems.
So when you said time sharing on a satellite is exactly what I was thinking about when you were speaking about the different organizations you're talking to, yeah. almost renting time on your buoy, is that correct? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, you were like the Uber for scientific sensors, basically, at that point. And so you mentioned the um, the blockchain model earlier. In my mind, it's kind of like crowdsourcing data. So yeah. are you collecting data yourself and also from other parties too? And you mentioned the other organizations, but other individuals? Yeah, I mean, so like if you decided that you wanted to, you had a house on the beach and you want to just record some kind of data and contribute to the project, you could do that. And uh, we could give you the tools to make that happen. Um, so, you know, I think it's really interesting because when I was in Fiji, um, one of the chiefs had asked me to explain blockchain to him. And I was thinking to myself, well, how do you explain, I don't know if the guy had a computer or not, but let's assume that he didn't. Like, how do you explain blockchain to a guy that doesn't have a computer? So I said to him, I said, well, you know, we sit around the Kava Circle and we learn about each other. And then if I promise that I'm going to do something in the Kava Circle and the whole village is here to hear me, um, but later I come back and say, no, I never said that. I'm not going to do that. What would happen? And he's like, well, if the whole village would say, no, I heard you say that. And I said, well, that's blockchain. Basically, I say I'm going to send a Bitcoin to somebody and then another machine kind of verifies it and confirms it. Another one confirms it. When I get three confirmations, then the transaction is, is almost done. That means it gets confirmed at that point. But then by the time that I you know, maybe use that Bitcoin, there's hundreds of thousands of machines globally that have confirmed, confirmed that and written it into their ledger. I say that's what we need to do with ocean data. You know, if the temperature is... 22 degrees and there's five other uh, buoys that are right around it that say it's also 22 degrees well then it must be 22 degrees um and this provides kind of some some uh it, it really for me even before all this crypto nonsense happened where people were going crazy blockchain always to me was a symbol of truth you know because that's what happens you know it's like when we go meet somebody and you're like i met this guy named raj he's got this podcast he's a nice guy he, he, he seems cool Hey, what do you think about it? Oh, no, Raj is a good guy. Oh, yeah, Raj is a good guy. So I'm only to deduce the fact that Raj is a good guy. And that's how we operate as humans. And I think having something like this in a digital format will really help us get to the next level when truly understanding the, 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 uh, what, what the ocean has in store for, for the next revolution. And I think we're heading in towards, we had the industrial revolution, we had the digital revolution, but we are on the cusp of a new blue uh, revolution. And um, this blue economy, I think, is going to really be something amazing in the next 10 years. Yeah, I agree. And consensus is one of the key pillars, I know, of blockchain and cryptocurrency. So understand what you're saying there. So, Jeremy, I'm going to switch gears here. You know, the crux of our conversation is the why behind what you do. You know, it's obvious from your experience. You mentioned swimming with the whales and a thousand hours underwater experience. But why Project Ocean, why now? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's funny because it's like everything has kind of come from art. It's a great question. Um, and thank you for phrasing it that way because, you know, what I have found is that, you know, I would, I've had art installations that have exhibited around the world. Um, one of them was called Lucid. It was part of the Ocean Plastics Lab. It was part of a, a commitment to the G7 uh, and paid for by the German ministry. And um, it was an installation where we would show, you know, just plastic trash, stuff that I had filmed from around the world. And we used a neurofeedback uh, headset. And um, when you were to clear your mind and, and not be distracted, you know, we would basically measure the way that your brain was operating in real time. 
and if you could be present and you weren't being distracted and being and constantly switching every every five seconds, we would we would rate you on a score. If you want, if you hit sixty percent of our score, then we would reward you with these beautiful things in the ocean that need protecting. Uh, as this thing traveled the world uh, for three years, you know, I, I got some amazing feedback from people and people saying, "Wow, this is crazy! This is crazy! I didn't realize this is a big deal. We should do something." And um, so I, I would get questions like, "Well, what can I do? What's the one thing that I can do?" And you know, I used to dread that question because I didn't really have a great way to answer that. And now I come back with, "Well, I don't know who you are." And I don't know what your superpower is, but whatever you're really good at, I think you need to focus that on this. And that's a much better way of kind of pushing this. Well, I try to kind of retrospectively like look back at myself and like, well, what am I really doing here other than exacerbating this particular issue and putting salt in the wound? I realize that, yeah, although it's great to create awareness about, about these issues, about the ocean and what needs to be done. It's more impactful to do something. So, um, but but these things are intrinsically connected. You can't have one without the other. So, I'm still very heavy in the art world. I still focus on ocean issues, but I created this project because I felt that it was an answer to what everyone was saying. Everyone kept saying, "We really need to have a collaboration tool where we can share ocean data." Well, check that box. Cool, we got that. And then we were like, well, we can't afford to, you know, enforce our waters because we don't even have a Navy. We have one boat and we can't afford gas. Okay, well, we figured out how to do it for fractions of the cost. So check that box. And then, you know, we're like, well, you know, we're overfishing and we don't even know what's going to happen. We can't catch fish for our own locals. And, you know, we, you know, we need to figure out, you know, what, what we have in our waters. Okay, check that box. So for me, it seemed like there was a vacuum of innovation in the ocean space. And um, there seemed to be like ingredients, right? Like going to the grocery store, telling yourself, I need to bake a cake. Well, you don't bake a cake by talking about it. You go to the grocery store and you get the ingredients. And in my case, the ingredients were some of the smartest people that I know saying, hey, could you do this part? Hey, could you do this part? And, you know eventually you leave the place with enough ingredients and now you got to go do the work. And, you know, we, we didn't, uh, we didn't raise any money. We, we basically, basically put resources together. All of us, um, you know, some of us wrote code. Um, I spent time working on relationships. Um, we, some of us built the actual hardware, uh, to build the drones, built the software to, to autonomously do all these functions that we're talking about today. And then at the end of the day, we ended up with actually a product that not only works, uh, it was funded by blood, sweat, and tears. And now that we have potential clients on the horizon, we are in our seed round. Um, but I didn't want to have, I didn't want to go through the seed process and say, well, here's this idea that we have. Because I'm a strong believer that every one of your ideas is worth absolutely nothing. I mean, I mean, if my idea was worth something, then I had invented the iPhone years before it was ever there, but I never did anything about it. So therefore, I didn't do anything. I didn't deserve it. So I believe your execution is really where your value is. And so we wanted to execute before we could you know, ever ask for you know, investment dollars. But now we're in that spot, and I'm really excited about it. Uh, we've received a lot of really great responses, but I think, I think that response is a direct response to your question of why now? Why now is because people 
probably more than any time in, in human history, realize the need for change. Um, we have more humans on the planet than we've ever had. And we're operating the same way, status quo, just like we have for thousands and thousands of years. And, you know, you don't, if it's not broke, you don't fix it. But unfortunately, it's broke and we have to fix it. And we hope that this could potentially be part of the solution. So, so far on this journey, what are some of the most valuable lessons that you'd say you've learned about yourself? Uh, I seem to be really good at getting people to get along, which is <laughs> odd. Um, I, I get frustrated with people very easily because I feel like, you know, they can be very short-sighted. Um, but instead of, you know, beating them up and saying, you know, hey, stop doing this stupid thing. Generally, I, I, I've somehow stepped into this role of kind of like being the middleman and saying, hey, you know, this person really wants this. Hey, this person really wants this. You know, could we find a golden thread that unites us all? And let's just focus on that. Um, I think that's one of the reasons why, you know, Susie and I, we founded Ultramarine on Sir Richard Branson's uh, Necker Island for that very reason. We thought there's a lot of people here that have a lot of opposing views, but there's some united um, ideas that kind of link us all together. So let's just all get on an island and let's lock ourselves in a room, basically, and let's see if we can solve some of the world's greatest problems um, with the resources that we have. So before I move on, I want to go back to that prop fowler for a moment. Sure. In my mind, I'm imagining, okay, an autonomous vehicle, a boat of some kind, and I'm imagining a harpoon or something like that coming out and wrapping up a prop. Can you tell me if I'm correct or if I'm crazy? <laughs> that actually sounds a lot cooler than the way that it actually is. Um, yeah, I mean, imagine imagine if you're following a boat and all of a sudden you it, it, it started growing long hair and there's this, you know, the, all of these threads that somehow go underneath your boat and just tangle the crap out of your props. That's essentially how this thing works. Um, and we're also looking at other, other ways to disable vessels at sea um, because, you know, we're, we're not some random company. We're actually working underneath the arm of a sovereign nation. So we have a little bit more liberty that we can operate under. And the other thing is, too, is that this is a fully collaborative system. So um, I think gone are the days where the country says, Jeremy, come on over here and, and help us with this project. And I come down there and plant a bunch of people that are not from there. I'm actually very much against that model, and uh, I'm looking for ways to kind of include uh, locals to train them, hire local, and then operate local. And um, I feel like, you know, once we all not only are educated on how these things work and, and why we need to do them, then it's it's more impactful that way. And you know, when you get stopped by one of these things, it's it's really more an extension of that local um, uh, brand and not just uh, not just some guy from Texas that's that's dropping these things everywhere. Um, but, but yeah, to answer your question, it's just, it's, you know, there's these, uh, strands, um, of Kevlar and carbon fiber, basically that, that go underneath the, the hull of the boat and the props basically suck them in. And if you have a, uh, a jet boat, um, then it goes inside the, um, the, uh, the interprop. It sounds like a mess for the owner to clean up. It, yeah, but you know, you, you know, you kind of, you kind of get what you deserve. You shouldn't have been there in the first place and you shouldn't have ran. Absolutely. So Jeremy, it's 2025. What does the future hold for Project Ocean? Yeah, I think we are looking at 
a number of really amazing things. I think, you know, right now we're really focused on what's going to happen with the blue economy. And I think when you think of the blue economy now, or when you talk to a lot of people, they talk about the exploitation of the ocean, whereas we focus on the exploration of the ocean. And I think um, this is the UN decade of oceans, as you're probably well aware. And, you know, come 2025, uh, we hope to have a significant number of countries on board with what we're doing. Um, and I really hope that we can, um, you know, we can, we, while we're protecting it, we're also learning a lot more. You know, I think that right now we are in a very uh, infantile kind of uh, setting where we barely, barely understand uh, the ocean, uh, what's in the ocean, and how to coexist with it. And I'm hoping with using our technology alongside scientists like Dr. Peter Gerges at Harvard University and others, we can um, really start to have a better sense of what we've been doing wrong for so long and how we can mitigate those threats. I appreciate you sharing that. And before I get to my last question, I was reading your website earlier today, and one of the paragraphs stood out to me. It says, two out of every three breaths we take come from the ocean. Can you expand on that, please? Sure. So um, there's these like little beautiful, uh, there's two things that, that, that kind of make that happen. There's uh, the bacteria known as prochlorococcus and, um, you know, and then there's little carbon-based life forms called coccolithophores. And so what's really interesting about these little guys is that, you know, they feed on different things in the ocean. You know, take, for example, whale poop. You know, whale poop feeds prochlorococcus and through photosynthesis, more than every second breath of air comes, uh, and that's what we're using right now. So whether you live in Dallas, whether you live in Hawaii, or whether you live in the middle of Siberia, you take that breath, you take another breath, and that second breath most likely is coming from the ocean. And this is an example of, of how we really take the ocean for granted. And, you know, when you ask, why am I doing this? Well, I don't want us to think of each other you know, it's fine that we have our own countries. It's fine that we have our own cultures. Great. Awesome. But when it comes to these particular issues, we need to realize that we're one human family. We're consuming the same resources. And we're not in a country. We're not in a town. We're on Spaceship Earth. And our life support system is the ocean. And without the ocean, there is no life. I mean, it's like you were talking about being afraid of not breathing underwater. I'm more afraid of not breathing on this planet. And I think that's the reason why we need to fight like this. You know, as Dr. Sylvia Earle says, we need to fight like our lives depend on it. Well, because they do. Well, Jeremy, that leads beautifully into my last question, which is if you could share some advice or words of wisdom with the audience, what would it be? Yeah, I, okay. Um, I would say, you know, all of us, we like to point fingers, right? We like to say, oh man, the Chinese... They're just raping our oceans right now. Uh, we like to point at other countries and saying, well, this, they've done this, maybe even our neighbors. They've done this, they've done that. At, the, at our core, we have to realize as humans, we all have the same needs and desires, right? We want to make sure that our bellies are fed. We want to have shelter. We don't want to have to worry about where money is coming from. We want to make sure that our children aren't starving, that they can get education. And we, we put all of these things in perspective and we realize that, yeah, your, your day is busy. You've got lots of things on your plate. You know, maybe your kids need to be fed. The bath time's coming up. You got to tuck them in bed. 
and then somehow find a way to work in the middle of all this stuff. Sure, your life is busy. But as Ferris Bueller once said, if you don't stop and look around once in a while, you could miss it. What I ask everyone to do is just take a moment. Book at least, you know, 30 minutes out of your day to stop and look around and think about this. You know, sure, the Chinese are sending massive fleets all over the world to just take tons of fish out of the ocean, but they also have a huge population. They don't want their children hungry either. We all have the same basic needs. We need to figure out how to stop, look around, and try to figure out what that common thread is so that we can all get the things that we need. I mean, after all, that's what negotiation is. Negotiation isn't about getting what you want. Negotiation is about getting what each other needs. And I think we need to do more of that instead of pointing fingers. Love that idea. Stop pointing fingers. Everyone get involved together. Jeremy, this has been a great conversation. Is there something that I have not explored or haven't asked you about that you'd like to share? Yeah, I would just like to share with the audience the fact that if they have some crazy idea and say, hey, look, you know what? I have this cool technology that I think could be used for the ocean, or I have a big pile of money that I want to fund somebody doing something cool for the ocean, or hey, I just want to be more involved in ocean issues, um, I would encourage you to go to ultramarineocean.com. This is an event that I host uh, and kind of co-founded along with my co-founder, Susie Mai on Sir Richard Branson's Necker Island. We meet every year where there's a physical and a virtual component. And it might sound super exclusive, but our mission is to be probably one of the most inclusive groups on the planet when it comes to ocean and to be able to syndicate what everyone's doing so that, you know, uh, every voice is heard. And um, this is a project that's very near and dear to my heart. And I believe that it's a project that can make real change for the oceans. I will put a link to that in the show notes, Jeremy, and I look forward to catching up with you again soon. Raj, thank you for having me on your show. This has been such a, a great opportunity, and um, you know, I really love what you're doing here, so thank you. Thank you, Jeremy. Before we go, I'm excited to share that we've launched our comic strip, The Adventures of Mira and Nexi. You can find the first issue at our website, nexuspmg.com, under the Original Content tab. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please give us a rating and review on iTunes. And you can show your support by sharing our show with a friend or reach out to us on social media where you'll find us under our Nexus PMG handle. If there's a subject or topic you'd like to hear about, send me an email, btu at nexuspmg.com or contact me via our website, nexuspmg.com. And while you're there, you can sign up for our monthly newsletter where we share what we're reading and thinking about in the clean tech, green tech sectors. Bigger Than Us is a Nexus PMG production.